Welcome to Heroes of the Hydean Way. This is a live play podcast that explores published adventures set in the Fantasy Flight Games Star Wars RPG line. Currently, this is a discussion episode discussing Dead in the Water and many other Fantasy Flight products out there. I'm Ben, and I've been the GM for this adventure so far. Hi there, I'm Christine, and on the show I play uh, Lieutenant Nima Ptolemy, the Muriolan commander. Hey, I'm Leslie. I'm traditionally heard as Kith. And I am Brent. I play the little bundle of joy that is TV-93, the tactical droid. <laughs> and that is how we all describe him. And we also have with us today a special guest, Keith Kappel, the writer behind Dead in the Water, the adventure we've been playing these last few months. Uh, welcome to Heroes of the Hiding Way, Keith. Thank you guys so much for having me. Psyched to be here. I've been listening to many, many episodes since you guys started doing this. And I'm just flattered that you oh, no. chose. <laughs> I'm flattered you guys chose something that I wrote. So it's it's been uh, educational to listen to another GM's interpretation of uh, <laughs> of the adventure. It's been awesome. Oh, thank you. And then the water really has jumped out at me as a GM as a really interesting adventure, especially Act Two, where everyone's stuck in the shadow after. Yeah, that exact description has been brought up time and time again. Because it's a great movie and a great reference. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it was sold to me when they asked me to write it. So okay. So did they? Um, so they came up with the the core concept. Yeah, I mean, generally for FFG, um, some other RPG companies allow you to like contact them and pitch things, right? Like, I want to do an adventure where you know this happens and then this and then oh no, here's the big finale. But um, FFG, really, they develop most of this kind of stuff in-house, and then they'll reach out to freelancers and say, hey, we're, do you want to write an adventure? You know, yes or no. Check the box. And uh, if you, like, circle maybe, like, write it in and send it back, they'll kind of, they'll give you the, <laughs> the, the like, one-paragraph elevator pitch of what it's about. And, uh, yeah, that's what you'll be writing then. So, uh, friends like these, Dead in the Water... Um, any of the big adventure modules, as far as I understand it anyway, that's how they've come about. Okay, so was the elevator pitch for this one just die hard in Star Wars? Yeah, basically. It was, I mean, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was like two sentences. It was like, so a droid ship has been taken over by like reprogrammed droids, and oh yeah, the ship is drifting toward uh, a black hole. You know, good luck. You have, And I think this job in particular was... Uh, a short turnaround thing so it was my third job ever i think for ffg my third job ever period also oh, and wow. yeah and they were like "Ooh, um so we're in a bit of a bind you did a good job on the two first things but do you have anything going on for the next like three weeks <laughs> and i was like no what's up and so yeah i wrote that entire module got you know conceived and fleshed out and written and approved in three weeks including the uh Squad and squadron rules, yeah. So, oh my. Well, this explains why there's a countdown timer in the adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because because I felt it every day of working on it. Yeah, there was not a lot of sleep. My personal life was dead in the water during that adventure. So it's all so clear now. <laughs> um, well, we were curious to know. Uh, you said this was your uh, third thing that you um, put together for FFG. How did you? St- get started doing supplements for FFG and their Star Wars line? Sure. So mostly I'm going to say it was uh, dumb luck. So, you know, it's all you aspiring writers out there. It's uh, 
Just be lucky. It's easy. That sounds like <laughs> great and encouraging advice. <laughs> no, um, so I actually went to college for, for creative writing, Columbia College Chicago, which has an amazing program. And when I graduated, uh, Fantasy Flight Games happened to be hosting an open call for freelance writers, which is not something they do very often. It's very easy to get in if you want to be a play tester or if you have a, a visual art skill, then, then the, I'm going to say it's easy to get in, but that the avenues to apply to get in are all um, pretty accessible right off their webpage. Copy editing as well, oddly enough. But the writing, it's like they find a team they like and they've kind of, it feels like they've had the same team of writers there on Star Wars anyway since that open call. It's a lot of guys that they already knew and had and then guys they picked up for that open call. So that's that was how I got in. Now, before then, I used to run a website, a fan site called uh, fandomcomics.com with Ryan Brooks, who also freelanced a little bit at Fantasy Flight Games. So me and him were just best friends since we were like 14, and uh, we loved Star Wars, we loved RPG stuff. And when I was like, I don't know. So this was a natural fit. Yeah, it was a good fit for us. And and we had been, uh, fandomcomics.com, I want to say the website's still up. I have a buddy who supposedly is in charge of uh, hosting it. But all we did was Star Wars fan comic books and Star Wars uh, fan RPG supplements for like D20 and D20 revised and Saga edition as well. So uh, we did like the Clone Wars fan source book. There was like 500 pages of Clone Wars related Saga edition material if you wanted it. Wow. Oh my. Yeah, and we just did it for fun. We loved doing it. It was fun to work with the artists and like a lot of obscure novel and comic book or well, novel characters especially. We we got artists to draw pictures because there were no pictures. And my buddy Ryan is also really skilled at doing layouts in Adobe and stuff like that. So all the stuff looked really pretty. And uh, we did that for years and years from about 2005 to 08. I'm sorry, 2005 to 2012 or so. And during the course of that, we started going to like Star Wars Celebration and uh, meeting these other people uh, that work in the industry. Sterling Hershey is probably the most important one. So I started fan stalking Sterling Hershey basically at conventions because I bumped into him like naturally once and then basically followed him around like a little lost puppy for like the next three conventions or something like that. You know, we, we ended up going to all the same panels because we were, I was interested in becoming a writer. I was already in college at that point. We talked a little bit, we got along and he kind of gave me the heads up that like, hey, buried in a forum somewhere over here, by the way, you and Ryan, you guys should totally apply for this uh if you guys want to write RPGs, apply for the open call. You know, who knows? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to apply for that open call. So me and Ryan spent like a week fine-tuning our cover letters and our submissions. <laughs> I think I sent them a, a Rancor written in their like uh, Warhammer Fantasy Rules. And uh, Ryan sent them uh, a Nexu. Because the, the requirement was to do like one page that's like a write-up and a stat block for a creature. And then, you know, we put our cover letters together uh, fandom comics played into my cover letter. You know, I let them know, hey, I've been for eight years now putting out a 15,000 word fan supplement every two months for a long time because me and Ryan would sort of alternate. So I had that. And then I also previously uh, worked at uh, uh, Naval Space Command as an intelligence specialist, you know, while I was in the military. And I worked on an aircraft carrier, which is probably the closest thing the planet has to like a real Star Destroyer. <laughs> We actually wanted to ask about that directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, totally. Uh, uh, so my cover letter was pretty strong in, in life experience for doing this job, uh, in addition to being uh, a serious Star Wars fan. Yeah, so I, I sent him my cover letter, and then I didn't hear anything for uh, 18 months. 
I had forgotten I had even applied for it. I assumed it didn't work out. The game had been announced, you know, and, and there was no email. I was checking space folders and everything. <laughs> and then one day, uh, I want to say it was my birthday weekend, I got an email from Sam Stewart back in like 2013 asking if I still wanted to work on some Star Wars. And I was a completely unpublished writer, you know, so I had no experience. And here he was offering me my dream job. So I did a long, long happy dance. I Googled who Sam Stewart was to make sure I wasn't being pranked by Ryan. And then uh, I said, hell yeah, I'll do that. And that was the um, Sons of Fortune job where I got to do um, a lot of random other planets in the uh, alien system. So I could do like Centerpoint Station. I got to do uh, some of the outer planets and space stations and stuff like that. And then I also got to do a modular encounter. I think it's the the Corell- no, the Five Brother Shuffle or something like that. It's like a smuggling run that's repeatable. I did that one That's as well. Really yeah, cool. I did both of those. So uh, the Conical Six Summit. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I ran and tortured my players with. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it wasn't because the module was written shoddily. Because uh, again, it was my first job, and uh, it, you know, it was so much work. I spent probably twice as much man hours as the other writers with sections three times as big because I had no idea what I was doing. And I also had never, I had not yet played the game. The beta was barely out. Yeah, so imagine that, no pressure, but like, don't screw this up or we'll never hire you again. And by the way, good luck figuring out the rules. We'll send you a PDF. But you know, you only have six weeks to do the job. Oh my. So I was freaking out pretty much the entire time. Are, are the turnarounds always that tight? There, I mean, I can't think of one I've worked with for FFG that was under two months. Oh, wow. I would say usually they're like six to eight weeks. It varies a little. I think when I was on uh, Force and Destiny Core Rulebook, I got a little bit longer. It was also a giant job. Oh, and when I did uh, Friends Like These, they gave me quite a bit longer because it was it was just me and Ryan that worked on that book. So I got quite a bit more time to, to turn that in. But uh, um, yeah, the turnarounds for the freelancers, they're generally not very long. But yeah, I think I over-answered that question. No, it's it's okay. There's no such thing, Keith. <laughs> Like you kind of touched on it, but the question I have for you is, how did your experience on that aircraft carrier sort of shape anything from dead in the water, or did it even? So in a way, like, it, it's a formative experience. It's something I went through from, like, age... I turned 19 in boot camp, and I got out uh, when I was, like, 23. So, and I'm 38 now, so this is pretty far in the rearview mirror for me at this point. Like, it, it's something that happened to me. It, it definitely infiltrates anything that that I do and uh, if you look at the things that I've worked on for FFG a lot of it is Age of Rebellion which is probably the most militant line of the three Star Wars lines so I, I think there's there's definitely something I'm bringing to it that they like mm-hmm. that has a sort of military association I, I know how that language sounds in general because I've spoken it you know so uh, as a native speaker I guess I think uh, uh, of military slang I, I think that helps I think just having lived on an aircraft carrier for about two years, just having had that experience and understanding what that lifestyle is like, allows me to bring a lot to anything set on a spaceship. And then the fact that I just have an intelligence specialist background, I think helps me with uh, being able to evaluate what enemies would want to do, what PCs, what actions they might want to take, and just analyzing tactically sort of situations to, to understand how to set them up or what might be a problem and what I can do as a writer to put something in the way that'll sort of 
not necessarily railroad players in a certain direction, but encourage them, you know? So I, I think it, it's, it's had a lot of influence, just, just having spent time in a uniform. I just related to your tactical experience and intelligence specialist, which just sounds really It sounds cool. so, it sounds like <laughs> I made it up, right? It sounds like that's not real. It sounds like a talent tree, <laughs> for honest. Have you um, been surprised or gotten stories that surprised you of choices players have made in Dead in the Water specifically, since I don't want any spoilers from upcoming adventures? Sure. I mean, I don't know that I'm, at this point, I'm a pretty experienced GM. I don't think I'm surprised by anything players do in general, because you just, you know not to try to have expectations. And I try really hard to frame things for the GM. In Dead in the Water, there's a, a sidebar that sort of explains what TJ11's goals are. So e- even if, if things aren't working uh, encounter to encounter as I have things sort of laid out, the GM can at least know what TJ11 wants and use their own sort of uh, mm-hmm. brain to, to figure out how he would accomplish it now that the players have changed everything. Not with Dead in the Water. I will tell you who surprises me the most as players are uh, children. <laughs> I run a lot of games for very young kids who have never played a role-playing game before. There's one major event I do every year. It's uh, Joliet Public Library's Star Wars Day. They draw like 10,000 Star Wars fans. It's like a mini Star Wars celebration. And uh, it's not too far from me in Chicago. So they keep asking me back and I set up my table. Sometimes I bring a few uh, guest GMs to run additional tables because there's just all the kids want to play and a lot of them don't want to leave the table once their turn's over. So I run for a lot of kids that are like five years old to like 12 years old. And I never know what they're going to do. You can't even begin to predict it. But I love running it for them. I could explain how the system works in about under two minutes usually. And then they have pre-gens, I have a map, and like, we're playing. And by the end of it, you know, they're uh, canceling their own dice results and spending their advantages and triumphs and threats and whatever. And certainly not shy to offer their friends how they should spend things too. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. They I, they, they usually only last about 30 minutes, but uh, my favorite story and the most unexpected thing that's probably happened in the system ever. I had a little girl, she must have been like nine. Her brother wanted to play and her brother's friends wanted to play. So there were like three boys and then this poor sister who wanted to be there, but I don't think most of the boys wanted her to be there. So they immediately tried to sort of push her off to the side. Sort of like, you go here and do this thing while we're going to do this thing. And uh, I was using like the Moss Espa map from the Edge Beginner Box. The idea was they had to smuggle... It was uh, bootleg video games, and they had to smuggle their bootleg video games across the city. They had already landed on on Tatooine, and they had to smuggle them from one side of the city to the other to their contact, who they were selling them to. (laughs) And uh, um, they wanted to send the sister to, uh, like, the spaceport control room on the map or something like that. And she had picked the spy pregen, the Duro spy pregen. And so she was like, well, okay, and she wasn't that happy about it. And the boys started telling me how they wanted to get all their guns and do this or do that. And I was like, okay, well, we've... We've gotten you guys set up for a minute. You know, you have your crates of video games. Let's let's check in over here and see what she can do to, to help you guys. So she's like, well, I'm a spy, right? I'm like, yeah. She's like, cool. I want to, she like had this plan she'd been thinking of. It was so elaborate. She's like, I want to sneak in to the spaceport control and find a stormtrooper. I'm like, okay, you do that. And she's like, I want to kill him and steal his armor and put it on. I'm like, that's awesome. That's totally cool spy thing to do. I'm with you. So she rolls, you know, she makes that happen. She's like, all right, now they have computers in the control room there, right? And I'm like, yes. She's like, cool. Can I, I'm a hacker, right? Can I be a hacker <laughs> as a spy? I'm like, yeah, you got a good computer skill. Let's do it. What do you want to do? She's like, so I want to throw a pizza party for all the other stormtroopers 
far away <laughs> from where we want to go. I want to throw them up to party in order. This is the coolest little girl ever. It was amazing. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, let's roll with this. Like, cool. So we make the check. She rolls uh, a triumph. And uh, I'm like, uh, what do you want to do with that triumph? Like, what, what what, should we do with it? She's like, I want to put it on Darth Vader's credit card. Oh. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that's awesome. That's so awesome. And uh, yeah, so she... She threw a pizza party for all the stormtroopers far away from the route they wanted to smuggle their bootleg video games through, and uh, <laughs> the mission was a great success. I hope those boys appreciated that. Uh, yeah, they, they their mouths were like hanging open. It was amazing. <laughs> it, it was great. It was it was great. So I mean, it was unexpected, but but wonderful. Uh, the other one that's really short is I was running for a girl and her mom and her dad. It was a different library event, uh, a much smaller one, smaller library. Joliet Public Library is enormous. Uh, so I was at this tiny library, and this little girl was there, and she was very shy. And she was really young. Uh, she was like maybe four. She might be the youngest person I've run this game for uh, at the time. And uh, I was running a Force and Destiny map, the, the big temple on the back of it. I had a bunch of these dogs, the wild dog creatures that are in that beginner box, the tokens coming at her I'm like there's, there's these angry dogs coming at you what do you want to do and she's like I want to pet them and make friends and I was like well okay I'm going to set up a check for you and you know that little girl had an army of, of dogs at her command for the rest of that adventure because you know she wasn't angry at the dogs she didn't she didn't want to hurt the dogs so so, so it's the little kids that, that always so throw cool. me off and I think the more I game for them, the more they prepare me for, like, adults can't surprise me anymore. I know what you're going to do. You're you're going to do, like, one of five things. And the kids, man, they'll come out of left field. You better be ready. So what you're saying is we should all go hang out with toddlers and then come play again. If you GM for toddlers, you will up your GM game very fast. Especially the improv side of your GM game. Like, you got to think on your feet fast. Yeah. Fast. Because they don't want to wait. While you look up a rule, you just better have an answer and keep it moving. But they're great. I love I love running for uh, the younger kids. Like there, I don't foresee a year where I won't do at least one or two of those events. They enjoy it so much, and uh, uh, I feel like as someone who works in this industry, especially, uh, I got to do my part to make sure the hobby continues on. You know, we can't all be uh, 30, 40, and fifty playing these games. We need some younger blood too. So and oh, so. You've been talking a bit about some of your favorite things to show up at your table. What are a couple of the things that you've had that are sort of your favorites to put on the table? Like, is there a module that you've put out that something you're really proud of or a villain or one of those little micro modules that are in like Sons of Fortune? Honestly, my favorite things that I've run are generally not things that I've uh, had published which is, I guess, unfortunate. I should be plugging product, right? So last year, was it last year or the year before, Gamer Nation Con, uh, I brought out Epic Play uh, Jedi Council module. This was like an experiment, like a weird Frankenstein's mad scientist experiment <laughs> to see what happens to this game when you start getting into, like, my character is 2,000 or XP or whatever. That was you? Yeah, that was I've, me. I've heard so. this story on the other side, but I haven't heard... I didn't know it was you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I was bored. I I was between FFG jobs, and this convention was maybe like three months or two months out. And I was like, I'm going to bring something crazy, because I've been working on the system a little while now, and I feel like one of the complaints I see on the forums from time to time just about the system is that things start to break down 
at higher level XP. And I was like, I wonder if that's true. What's the worst it could be? So <laughs> I tried to build the Jedi Council. Like Yoda had 2,400 XP earned. Obi-Wan had like 2,200. The lowest uh, XP character was like 1,800. So there was like a range. And it's uh, a, a Clone Wars story about the Jedi Council uh, investigating like some new sort of Cortosis-based battle droid. That's like a Jedi killer. You know, they go to Ando and uh, deal with all the crazy Aqualish guys there. And then they end up going to, like, Ando Prime, which is, like, a snow-covered planet. And that ends up bringing, like, Sereno for this, like, big showdown uh, with, like, Dooku and Ventress. And there's, like, a Mandalorian there. There's, like, it's, like, Alpha, I think, or Spar. One of the elite clones that goes bad. Urge. Like, all just all these different sort of uh, high-level opponents to try to keep these Jedi uh, tied up. Plus some of these Jedi-killing droids. And that, that was just a lot of fun to see what the system looks like when you just go epic and go crazy. So I love running that. At conventions, I love, uh, I tend to just throw out whatever module they give me. And uh, my favorite thing to run is like, pick a classic trilogy movie. We're gonna do that. Keep your pre-gens, but pretend it's a stormtrooper because we're gonna be bad guys. And we're just gonna go through the events of the movie through the point of view of <laughs> the Imperials. So um, like you could play A New Hope and you'll start out helping out, uh, taking the Tanti V4. And then you'll, uh, <laughs> as a result of the intelligence from the prisoner, Princess Leia, you'll, you'll get sent to Dantooine to see if there's really a rebel base there. When you find out there is not, you will, uh, get a clue that leads you to Yavin, the Yavin system, and you will arrive just in time to, uh, witness the explosion of the Death Star and help slow the spin of Darth Vader's TIE Fighter. It's, it's that sort of thing, but for all the, all the classic trilogy movies, I have one for, for each uh, movie that I could just sort of run off the top of my head as long as I have dice, a GM kit, some pre-gens, and, like, some adversary cards. So, yeah, there's lots of stuff I like to get on the table. I'll also just make something up as we go. That's not a big deal. Jay Little, I've played in a few games with him, who, of course, uh, designed the system, and, and he's showed me. I've watched him do it, where he just asks everybody around the table for, like, one word to explain what Star Wars means to them, and he'll look at that list for, like, 30 seconds and be like, cool, we're going to just make it up as we go now and let's see what happens. And uh, so I've kind of taken that approach to heart with this system because I feel like the system sings the best when you're not trying to force it down any particular path. But as far as material I've published, like I love so many things that I've managed to get away with sneaking into the books. Like there's a lot of them because I'm a big EU nerd. So like, when I took this job, in a way, it was on the strength of, like, well, he knows the lore so well. Let's make sure we get him in here. And now it's, like, shortly after I got the job, it's, like, well, a lot of it doesn't really count anymore. But, like, it's, it's a very strange situation just because, like, they're generally okay with me reincorporating a planet that maybe hasn't been mentioned since the canon wipe, but less so with, like, characters or events, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, the, the fact that like, this planet is still there and has this alien species there. I, I've yet to really get much in the way of flack on that. Okay. How many planets have even been mentioned since the the wipe? I mean, do you have to go through the all of the released books? Do you have a list somewhere of everything that's been released? Like, okay, so in so-and-so's book... Oh, that would be so nice. That would make my life so easy. <laughs> you, you mean Pablo Hidalgo hasn't uh, provided you with one of those yet? Yeah, oh no, me and him, I just ask him, right? I just tell him to stop what he's doing and answer my question. Okay. 
No, absolutely not. You kind of just have to, you have to read everything and stay on top of it. And it's a lot. I have a pretty good memory, luckily. If, if you look on the internet, you could find me going head to head with John Jackson Miller. There was a trivia podcast called The Who Shot First or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I got to go up against John Jackson Miller and I, I'm not going to say I embarrassed them, but you know, I, uh, I came out on top. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He, he performed admirably if, if, if it was futile. Yeah, because, you know, I like I've been into this stuff for a long, long time. So a lot of it I just well, know. Now I want to know, uh, what was your favorite Legends property? <laughs> uh, like Planet or uh, Product? Uh, I was more thinking like like Product, like Book, Game, something like that. But if you have a favorite Planet oh, or something man. from then, then that works too. Absolutely, hands down, my favorite uh, series of books were the... Uh, once Aaron Alston got into the Raid Squadron stuff. Yes. Um, <laughs> yub Yub Commanders. All yes. I need in my life. Uh, so those are amazing and they're classics. I also love the uh, AC Chris Benham solo trilogy, the old one. Uh, I mean, the, the Thrawn trilogy is classic. I'm not going to hate on it or anything. Yeah. Uh, like, it's, it was, it's what got me into all of this, oh, was yeah. reading that. Uh, and I really love that classic Thrawn trilogy uh, a lot, but but the the yeah. Raid Squadron stuff, especially since it spoke to me as uh, uh, at that time someone who wanted to go into the service. I think when those were coming out, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, those are some of my favorites. I was so big comic book guy, so um, I really uh, enjoyed the Republic comic that they did with all the Clone Wars stuff. Some of the older comics were great too. Uh, the Tales of the Jedi stuff. You have some really good taste there, mm-hmm. Keith. You're basically uh, naming all of my favorites. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I, you know, but then again, I like I did read everything. Like uh, we sadly don't have a camera situation here, but I have an entire wall that is. Uh, it's got. It was built for records, I want to say, but it's it's essentially seven foot tall bookshelves, and it's about you know twelve feet wide, and it's nothing but the Star Wars reference books, and it doesn't hold all of them. Like I have to have some additional bookshelves too. But, you know, and I love the old West End Games uh, RPG stuff and and the WotC stuff as well. I'm actually a credited playtester on D20 from WotC uh, Star Wars just, just because, like a freak, I emailed Bill Slavicsick in, like, 96 I have a similar situation uh, myself. Him exactly everything he needed to do to make the new Star Wars RPG a success at WotC, which was, in hindsight, incredibly horrible. It was like a 20-page email. It was ridiculous. But he emailed me back, clearly having not read any of it, saying, you sound like you have strong feelings about this. You should really playtest this. But yeah, me and Ryan Brooks as well, you can find both our names in the, the old D20 uh, core book and D20 revised as well as playtesters. Yeah, uh, my, my big claim to fame is uh, I told them Force Fireball is not cool to have in this book. And uh, um, <laughs> it, the language isn't Wookiees. The language awesome. isn't Wookiees, it's Shrewook. And Wookiees should have more than plus two stars. <laughs> yeah, though, I'm sure I was the only person to say any of those things. No, I still have to go. I'm sure there was a wide consensus. Those were bad. Thank ideas. you for that. But, uh, yeah, at the time, I think they just uh, took whatever it was like version 3.5 D and D, and just did a search replace wizard for Jedi, and that's what they gave us. Like it wasn't it wasn't much more than that to play test. I really <laughs> don't think it was, but you know, long time ago. And uh, um, I think I was actually on the aircraft carrier at the time I was playtesting that, oddly enough. That was a, a weird experience. You've mentioned that you may not be caught up, but you have been listening to the show. So I'm kind of wondering, what's your take on the 
wild antics of the four players. I love it so much. It's, uh, I mean, not only is it incredibly flattering to my ego to have like 20 hours of people playing through something I wrote, right? Like that's, that's awesome just completely on its own. No matter how, you know, I felt about it otherwise, it would just be very flattering. <laughs> it's, it is very flattering that it, that it exists. But you guys all have such well-drawn characters, and I really love the interplay and the, the push-pull sort of within the group of uh, what people want to do. And banter is really strong. And uh, uh, the episodes are really well edited because things move along. You know, I don't feel like I'm getting bogged down in players asking uh, what their choices are or uh, trying to figure out tactically how they want to approach things. Uh, it, it feels like I'm listening to a story that I wrote, but yet that I didn't write, right? Because as, mm-hmm. as players and GMs, you guys are, you're making it your own, which is what, that's how these games are supposed to work. So yeah, I've, I've really, really been enjoying it. The, uh, the Alan Reichman style droid is, is <laughs> a standout as, as being really fun and great. It remind, reminds me a little bit of the Hitchhiker's Guide. Such a, such a good time. Marvin may have been somewhat of an influence. <laughs> it was cool seeing some of the different environment. Like Portugo was a lot of fun to write when I was making that module because I kind of wanted to make a uh, sort of lawless pirate haven. So that, it was fun to see some of those characters and some of uh, uh, that setting come to life. And then, and then even uh, some of my crewmen. It was nice to see them get mentioned because you got to remember I wrote this years and years ago and haven't really thought over much about it since. So. Some of the stuff I'd be like, did I, did I write that? What is that? And had to go flip in the book real quick. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, I did. I did sneak a, a boss uh, crewman in there and nobody took it out. Awesome. Yeah. When the deadlines are tight, I feel like they have less time to screw with my weird subtle references. So more stuff sneaks through. <laughs> I've really liked Dead in the Water and the setup, the sort of elevator pitch of friends like these has been the other thing that's drawn me to it. Ever since I heard about it, I've been wanting to run it. Like, we sort of decided that we were going to run Friends Like These before I even had it in my hands up here in Canada, because apparently there's a wampa bore. Getting stuff from FFG up here is interesting. Yeah, I was really hoping that the uh, Asmodee relationship we have now would really help uh, with international shipping of product in general, and I'm not sure that that's really been the case uh, so far. But uh, I know they they definitely uh, are aware that, that they've had some issues getting off overseas and just to, out of the United States. So I'm sure they're working on it. But yeah, you, let's just say you're not the first to be like, so who do I have to stab to get one of those over here? You know. Well, it it's almost to the point of how much do I have to bribe Brent to drive about seven hours north? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's technically smuggling, right? Like Star Wars themed. But, yes. Uh, well, as, as long as you're declaring it. But uh, I know. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad Friends Like These is exciting for you. They're, actually, Friends Like These and Dead in the Water and uh, that the Corellian Shuffle all share uh, that interesting sort of my fascination with uh, timers in, in adventure modules. Uh, all three of them do. It's become a, a weird theme in my work unintentionally. And actually, I was curious about that. Um, because you have written in these timers into so many of your uh, adventures, do you have any advice uh, for GMs who might look to add tension to their games with a time limit? First of all, probably don't do it the way I've been doing it. Like I keep experimenting and trying to find the right way to track time in in an RPG game, and it, it's hard. It's hard to do, especially 
in a system like this where we're we're so averse to any sort of bean counting, right? Like that's not the system's not supposed to be about that sort of stuff. But there's so much benefit, I feel like, at the table to adding uh, the tension of like in Dead in the Water, my main goal with with how I did the time management, Friends Like These has elements of this as well, is to to force players to choose, right? I feel like the, the player mentality, or at least the one I encounter most often, certainly isn't everyone, is that they want to unlock 100% of the game. This is like a video gamer built-in mentality where it's like, I want to meet every NPC and unlock all the bonuses and, you know, they want to do everything. And the, and the second you put in front of them like, no, I'm sorry, there's not enough time to do both. You have to choose what's more important to you. I feel like immediately that's going to add tension to the party Although, as a GM, you have to sort of be in charge of making sure that's a good tension and not a bad tension. But um, it's going to add some some party tension, which I think is always good, especially in a system that sort of encourages it with things like the duty mechanic or the obligation mechanic or the motivation mechanics where uh, different characters are being pulled in different directions and, and you can't... The entire party won't always go along with doing the same thing or want to do the same thing. Certainly, it's it's an object of interest to me because I feel like uh, we're telling stories here, and, and stories have drama, and there is no drama if there's time to do everything. I would encourage GMs to experiment and try with presenting choices to characters, but but uh, uh, where there isn't enough time to do both things, or splitting party doesn't necessarily look uh, viable. But as, as to how to go about it, man, uh, the time management is tricky. I'm still learning and researching and experimenting and uh, I'm sure there's someone out there who knows how to do that better than I do but uh, the cool thing is dice results in in FFG Star Wars lend themselves to to modifying the timetable right like you got some advantage now what doing what to do with it well you got there a little faster or you know some threat you got there a little slower uh, it, it makes for some easy dice expenditures if you're getting hung up but uh, otherwise, beyond it seems keeping track of the actual hours and minutes, I haven't yet cracked the, uh, the secret code to RPG time management. I'm running dead in the water for my kids, and I just had this giant 20-sided die. And whenever it's an appropriate time for the for the ticker to advance, I'll just rotate it. You know, it goes from three to four, and it's, it's on a wooden table, so it makes like this clunk sound. And they have a little mini panic attack every time it goes. Oh, yeah. I love it, yeah. I mean, it is highly motivational. It's like, it's like the clock going, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. I love it. <laughs> Your children are going to have hypertension, Brent. Well, it's my job as a parent. <laughs> uh, that's a great way. That's a great way to, <laughs> to help manage it. And, and, of course, I feel like I don't want GMs there with, like, a stopwatch and a timer, right? Like, I don't want it to be that intense. But the dice is good. Like, just keep it to the hour. That's probably a good way to approach it for friends like these. I think we. I, I've tried some... When I write these projects, I tend to do my best anyway to, to try to swing big and develop a new mechanic or something to deal with certain things and, and they don't always make it to the final cut because you know when you swing big part of that is not being afraid to completely fall on your face and fail and where it comes to time management so far I think that's about where I've been. I think an early version of I'm not even sure if it was Dead in the Water or Friends Like These there was a, an attempt at like a, a graphic, a timer, sort of looked like a, a cribbage Sort of, it looked like a, you know, just a, a long thing with a bunch of holes in it that you would fill in as sort of time expired. And the idea would be that, you know, GMs could photocopy it and, and, uh, have it at the table and just fill in bubbles as time expired, uh, or as the spares cropped up or whatever. And that was going to be one way to sort of keep track. Cause in friends like these, you're actually checking two different things on different timers and 
think that ended up getting simplified, and rightfully so, in the in the final cut. It was a little overly complicated, uh, what I initially tried. Yeah, so I, I guess the answer is I, I'm trying to figure that out, too, and if you find out, let me know. I think you should just have a metronome in the background just making the ticking noise. <laughs> Not necessarily counting down, just ticking ominously. You can always do it in real time, right? Just be like, so this clock's going, guys. Uh, I know of a few people who would try that. And it's amazing the weirdness that would happen, especially considering you do have a few combats in there. Right, right. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of the questions that we had for you. Brent, Christine, Leslie, do you have any other questions for Keith? Um, I guess I had one about uh, TJ-11. I know it's been a couple of years since, since you've written this, but uh, tactical droids kind of have a reputation for being somewhat uh, snarky and <laughs> condescending and <laughs> egotistical and all that kind of stuff. I was surprised by the choice that he had so few lines in the adventure. It's it's really ominous is what it is. <laughs> He's just kind of this, this faceless, nameless dread that's out there. But I would have been really tempted to do the whole diehard thing and uh, and have him on the intercom just mocking us all the oh, time. Oh, I wish. And so I just thought that was an interesting decision. And Yeah, it's, uh, unfortunately, some decisions get made for space rather than uh, uh, desire. Uh, for one of the interesting quirks of, of uh, RPG writing is... Uh, they tend to lay out some of these books. Some of these companies lay out the book before they hire the writers to write the book. Yeah, so they they kind of know that, like, page 93 has a, a picture and 550 words fit on page 93, and here's the topic for page 93. And and that, and that's how FFG is able to lay out these gorgeous books and know kind of how much they need. And, like, there, there's there's very good reasons for doing it that way. What what it ends up meaning is that when the, the writers get hired on, there's an element of, like, I'm filling holes a little bit. I have a shovel and I have to fill up this hole with words, but I only have so many words. And for me, process-wise, like the way it goes when I'm developing uh, one of these jobs is uh, I'm what's called a, a reductive writer. There's far more than two different kinds of writers, but of the two, uh, most writers can consider themselves either uh, additive or reductive. Uh, so an additive writer is it a, would apply to prose or whatever. We'll just kind of write like they're their bare bones plot and dialogue and, or whatever comes most natural to them. They'll write that all the way through and that's their draft. And then they might have to go back and add like, oh, I introduced this castle and I never tell people what it looks like. So I need to add description here. And then I need to go add this over here about what this character looks like because you never get to see them or whatever. So I'm a reductive where I overwrite the hell out of anything they assign me. Uh, about 30% of the words I'm allowed to use. And uh, uh, then the bulk of my job is spent trimming, 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 trimming uh, all the fat away, trying to find uh, a way to say that something I said in 13 words, I got to find a way to say it in nine words that and not lose any sort of content. And that's that tends to be like how my process looks when I build stuff wow. like this uh, from, from the actual prose writing stage. And all sorts of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. I just did a job recently where uh, which I can't really talk about, but uh, if I keep it generic enough. So I was on a book, and I had a section that was 4,850 words. That's what I had. And I, I drafted 12,000 words, which was a real problem. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, but I couldn't I couldn't stop writing, and there were more things to say about that topic that, like, in my mind had to be said. Like, I can't not talk about this element of that thing. Otherwise, all I'll see on the entire Internet is how... I'm a jerk and I didn't talk about that thing that's everybody's favorite or whatever. Yeah, I can see that. Right, so I, I go through it and trim, trim. I can't imagine sacrificing 8,000 words, though. 
I mean, I know kill your darlings, but oh no, I murdered all of them. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm a mass murderer at this point of darlings, sadly. But uh, yeah, so I'm able to go through and just sentence by sentence wordsmith things to more efficient uh, ways of saying them, and I could usually trim, you know, twenty percent or something like that. But this this last one was just so far over that it ended up meaning content getting cut, and it was like, oh, but I love that. Why can't that be in there? Sometimes it's how it goes, and so. Uh, TJLN dialogue, unfortunately, there just there was not space for it. I, I suppose Act 3 didn't need to be there. It's probably the weakest of the three acts in Dead of the Water, and it's it's very cursory, so it feels like it should either not be there at all or it should be fleshed out more. A lot of that stuff deserved, I think, more pages, but those GM kits are a very set number of pages, and, you know, they can't, they can't just start adding them, you know. So, yeah, there was no room to really explore TJ11's motivations or anything like that, unfortunately. Well, I mean, like I said, it didn't necessarily detract from the story. He just became more of this nameless, faceless dread sort of thing as opposed to uh, to character. So it still works. It was just different. It it might be lazy, but one of the advantages I have of writing RPGs is that I can lean on uh, quality GMs to flesh out things I may have (laughs) missed or uh, undo things I may have screwed (laughs) up. So uh, I guess I'm lucky in in that regard. That book also had to fit those squad and squadron rules, which are probably the, the most questioned rules in all of... FFG rules releases but like guys they wanted me to do something complicated in three weeks and I think I had like 1100 words to explain squad and squadron rules it, it just it, it, it turned out not to be enough word count in my opinion for the the subject matter you know sometimes that's just the way it goes unfortunately in uh, some of the other books like one of my favorite things to write for FFG is uh, to do like planet write-ups I, I love doing those because they're I get to draw on like my research intelligence analyst training a little bit when I do those. And uh, um, so when I get a job like Strongholds of Resistance, where I did uh, for the big plants, they let me invent a planet or Gimel. And I got to write about the independence, which is probably the most direct, like, here's what life on the aircraft carrier is like entry. I had to fight for the independence, too, because uh, Andy uh, Fisher was the, the dev on that book, and he's awesome. But uh, making a ship a location instead of a, a, just a ship stat block was kind of grinding his boxes the wrong way because, you know, that's no locations going mm-hmm. to the location box and ships going to the ship box. I'm like, yeah, but I don't, I'm not trying to write about the ship as something to take into combat. I'm trying to write about it as, as setting, as a place. So I argued for a long, long time <laughs> back and forth and, and he relented eventually. And I'm glad that he did. Yeah, I, I, I was too. Because I was like, no, this is my big my big moment. I put, I think, alternate rules got onto that page for uh, skeleton crews or ships <laughs> yes, or something like that. I love those. Yeah, which was also something that was taken from my actual experience working in the military on these sorts of ships. But normally, uh, before I even start writing, like for me, it's a, a big Wikipedia like scavenger hunt. <laughs> like, I dig in, I assemble all my sort of information and facts. I'm already familiar with a lot of it, so just a slight reminder. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember all of that. But I'll, I'll, I have a couple of empty bookshelves uh, right next to my desk. So I, when I'm on a job, I'll sort of assemble the relevant sources, and I'll put them all right next to my desk so they're within arm's reach while I'm on the job. And I'll refamiliarize myself with something. I'll list a bunch of notes, and then I'll start my Intel analyst brain. I'll start making connections, right? Like things that like, ooh, I see that these two things feel somewhat related. Maybe I can explore that connection. Yeah. I'm looking on the, the Essential Atlas, which in my for my money is uh, the most important book for Star Wars RPG GMs and players alike to buy. Buy the Essential Atlas, especially as a GM. I, I, have, I find story 
in the Atlas so yeah. often where uh, friends like these, for example, we a lot of the planet selection came off of the Atlas where we were just like, well, what's nearby? Because uh, a ver- of, well, a critical part of that story, like the buy-in, is that they ex- I don't want to spoil a lot here, but it's written on the back of the book, so it's not that big a spoiler. But the idea is that the the, uh, the rebels are going to be forced to maybe work with some uh, unlikely allies that maybe don't share all of the rebels' values. And the reason you're doing this is because you you don't have any choice. There's there's a countdown going on, and these are the people within reach. So it wouldn't make sense if I was picking locations located halfway across the galaxy. Somebody would freak mm-hmm. out and light me up all over the internet if I did something like that. So like, I, that's me and Ryan, we wrote that together, my buddy Ryan. Uh, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, what section of space allows us to use the groups that they're telling us to use, where we could put them all sort of in the same place and have it make sense and make it all work. So so the Atlas sort of informed a lot of the planet selections and, and that once you know where you're at, it starts to inform the story and what else is there and, and what sort of encounters you might come across. I try to let the lore lead, lead the way in, as much as I can. In fact, Vlemeth Port basically had like, it's the most obscure thing I think I've incorporated because it's it's the original D6 Game Master screen. <laughs> it has like, it's like the kit that came with a screen, like the little packet. It's mentioned like in a table somewhere. Is a that's where I've seen it before. Textiles, like, and that was it. That was it. There was the name of a planet and like it sells textiles and that's the extent of the reference. It's from something that you can't find anywhere, anywhere. It existed in the lore before, but... Oh, you are such a nerd. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, like, these things are like, I don't care if no one else knows, but that's, like, for me, I know I didn't make up that name. I found it somewhere and, and turned it into something. And the other planet, obviously, has a, a well-known, well-associated species that goes with it that laughs something like that. And, uh, uh, so, so we don't know what we're getting into yet. <laughs> oh, it's exciting. But, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of... There's a lot of fun that, that Ryan and I had with, I mean, the planet write-ups are by far my favorite thing to do because I like, I like making connections and figuring out what their place in the larger galaxy is. And the geography helps me a lot with that. So Essential Atlas, I can't plug it enough. And having read through Friends Like These now probably four or five times, the planet write-ups in there are something that I keep coming back to as a resource that helps inform how I try and plan out to deal with the four players that are going to take all of my plans and just throw them to the wind. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, thanks, I appreciate that. And that's definitely the intent when I, whenever I do it, whether it's uh, in the ARGM kit, there's a few location write-ups I do as well. And a lot of them have like layers to them that maybe aren't really obvious. Like Portuga, for instance, is actually a... Uh, uh, do you guys know the Gree Enclave from the old West End game stuff? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a Gree Enclave spaceship, uh, spaceport or whatever. Uh, so that sort of explains some of the weird technology that's there. And yeah, uh, yeah, there, there's even some hints there. I actually ran like a scavenger hunt, like an EU lore scavenger hunt for <laughs> the ARG for in the water when it came out, and the prize was like I don't know. I love you, people. You're all like, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking. I have no idea what's coming out of your mouth at this point. <laughs> I'm sorry. Leslie, the- I was going to say, Leslie, they're going so deep, I've never even heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> so the the Gree Enclave is like, if you play the Tor MMO, you've probably seen them because they, they got some love in that game. But they were from like one of the Star Wars adventure journals in West End Games. 
And they were like this short sort of... You guys remember Krang the Conqueror from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yeah, I know that reference. (laughs) That one I get. Thanks, Kev. So picture like that guy, but green and with like sort of legs, but still kind of like spongy and brainy looking. But they look kind of like that. They have very advanced but weird technology. And the Gree have sort of been slowly de-evolving and going extinct and have lost uh, the knowledge of how to use most of their technology, but it still exists all over the place. So it's one of these ancient civilizations, like the Kalamai, and there's a, there's a few other ones. So I thought it'd be cool if the Huts like found this this sort of uh, space station that was real, real close to a star. Because my my main idea, what I came up with, was like I was trying to think how would smugglers and criminals hide from uh, from the Empire because it's near a pretty well traveled hyperspace route. Yeah. Like where where could you hide something and have it just not be seen? And I was like, well, if you put it really, really close to a star, there's no way. There's no way anybody's going to see anything. Because there's just way too much radiation and energy pouring out anyway. And then the question became, well, I mean, a Star Destroyer probably couldn't hang out that close to a star. So what what would it take? I was like, well, we'll get some ancient weird technology from the Gree Enclave. And that became this sort of like the, the like one element that's different, right? I could have just made it a, a normal space station. But I feel like that's, that's, uh, uh, that's going on autopilot. It's Star Wars. There has to be something exotic, something that makes it something people haven't seen before. I try I try my best to make these iconic locations that uh, that people want to go back to and that uh, have some interesting characters and that, that GMs, even if they don't want to run my adventure or they read my adventure and decide it's trash, they're like, but hey, at least the locations are strong and I can, I can use this because this is helpful. Thank you so much for talking about most of your process and a lot of the different things that you've covered. Like, like I know I sort of invite you on to talk about in the water because well it just kind of finished running it but it's so interesting to hear about the process that you're going through every time you're writing for ffg or other places yeah it's uh it feels like a marathon you're running at sprint speed for like six to eight weeks hopefully right hopefully it's not another three-week job where it's like i guess i don't do anything but this for a while yeah i still like sort of wake up in cold sweats sometimes thinking like about dead in the water and the deadlines yeah, man, it, it's 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 an intense process every single time. Uh, I, I think that's true of almost anyone who works on these books because you want to do a good job, and they're in print. And Star Wars, it's going to live forever. So you you want you want to do the absolute best job you can. In twenty years, there'll be some kid like me that's uh, uh, referencing something obscure and weird that I put in a book. You know. And does that make your nerd heart grow three sizes? It will when it, <laughs> if ever happens one day. It's totally going to happen, dude. They're going to be talking about Gree, starships, all that stuff. Well, we look forward to uh, running another one of yours coming yeah. up. Yeah, well, that not our friends like these. That's a, that's a jarring transition. I'm excited to see uh, how that goes. I'm terrified. Uh, I just, I, I love the idea of, okay, you've survived dead in the water. Now you've been proven as the group who can survive doing friends like these. It's like, okay, yeah, we're absolutely housed. Yeah, we'll no, I, th- I think there's there's definitely a reason for the Alliance to ask for you, especially if you happen to be in that neighborhood. It takes place pretty far away from where Dead in the Water takes place. Yeah, it does. But with the way hyperspace is nowadays, it's sort of so wibbly-wobbly. Speed plot, speed of plot. 
Exactly. As long as they don't promise us a vacation this time and put us into this situation. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what they should do. You guys should get the call for this mission while you're vacationing <laughs> at a nearby no. <laughs> I think that's the best introduction It's something now. like that, yeah. Could be, you know, like... It, it's something very much like that, <laughs> yeah. taking in the, the, the Twi'leks of Ryloth and their, you know, festival or whatever, and all of a sudden you get that call. Or a, a hunting expedition on Rhodia. yeah. What, what alien? You guys have a Mirialian and, and a Bothan, right? Avengers Assemble. <laughs> you have a Bothan, don't you? Yeah. Uh, Bothan space isn't that far away. No. Oh, oh throwing, good point. Just throwing stuff out no, there. No, that would be a good just one. off the top of my head, what I can remember. I, I can't remember the planet Ben and I discussed for being Kit's home planet, though. I don't I don't think it's actually a Bothan planet. I think it's a, a, a multiracial metropolitan planet. I'm so bad, it's my character, and I can't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I at least know where I came from. I came from Coruscant, born and raised. Oh, one of those. Aren't you very special? I'm one of the elite. Yes. Well, very happy. <laughs> I have no parents. You have a factory, Brent. Stop whining. Well, no, and TV doesn't even know That's which planet the elite is. That sounds like a, a side quest Aww. just waiting to happen. The where did I come from? <laughs> Probably Mechas 3. It's been hanging over my it's head. It's the clip for... episode that, that, that is coming up. That, that's uh, what we Technically, should... you could have been made on Zorn. <laughs> I'm sure I was constructed, and wherever is convenient for Ben to uh, have me been constructed. <laughs> that, that would be a, a kind of a neat tie-in to find out, ooh, here's the factory where... It would be like some extra motivation. Uh, yes. That, that's interesting. Maybe my little blankie is there. <laughs> that's all TV needs to be happy is his blankie and his old little droid <laughs> Awesome. You have a little droid buddy. His name is Raimi. <laughs> He's our favorite. <laughs> uh, yes. When weird roles go and completely mess up the GM's plan. I have to say, one of the planets, if I had my choice of any planet that I could tackle next, it might be Muriel, the home of the Murielans. Uh Hilo Sortuli, Captain Captain Sortuli is one of the characters I chose. I love that species. I think they're, they're really that would cool be looking. Cool. Uh, and I, I don't think that planet's made it into a book. I've been playing one. I don't think so. I don't. I don't believe so. Because I, I actually did a bunch of research on the Miri Allens before I put Nima together. Even though she's not from there, her parents were there. They're immigrants to Coruscant, and uh, there's barely any information on there. We basically know it's cold, and uh, they didn't have a lot of food, and that's basically. And I don't <laughs> even know if the cold thing, because I remember them saying it was a cold planet early on. I don't know if that survived the canon shift, honestly. I think I've heard other things. I'd then. still mention in Force and in the Force and Destiny core. Oh, role I wrote that, sure. so then that must be. I guess it works now. Then it must be it, true. <laughs> uh, I wrote the planetary gazetteer for that book for sure. So. Well, we could talk to you all day, Keith, uh, but I think it's time for us to go ahead and wrap this up. We'd love to have you on again for a future episode, especially once we get deep into friends like these. Sure, I'd love to. Yeah, thanks so much for being on here. It's been great having you. So we're just going to do a quick exit. First off, where can people find you on the internet? Sure. So um, if you want to just find, uh, follow what I have going on Star Wars wise professionally, Twitter at K-R Kappel, uh, K-A-P-P-E-L is the place to find me. Otherwise, uh, um, I do have a Patreon if you're interested in my non-Star Wars work which is uh, uh, patreon.com slash krkappel. And then uh, the final place you could find me is I've just opened a school for people who want to write uh, RPGs oh, cool. and sci-fi and fantasy. And uh, 
Yeah, and that that program, it's the same. It's modeled on the same program I went through uh, at college, the same creative writing program. There's, I'm not the teacher. I'm like a fellow guest student most of the time. Um, we'll have other guest students as well. But Maggie Ritchie is my instructor. She's amazing. And uh, that could be found at patreon.com slash adventure writing academy. Very awesome. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. You can find show updates on Twitter at the Hydean Way. And you can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Deuterium Ice. And you can find me, Christine, on Twitter at Twelfth Night. That's one, two, TH, and Night with a K. You can find the Meat Sack That Plays TV93 at Ibram Brown on Twitter. And you can find me, Leslie, and or Kith, at GS. And if you happen to be missing the dulcet tones of Chris, who we lost in the ether for this episode, possibly another Force Vision, <laughs> I don't know, uh, you can check him out on Twitter at SilZeroChris, named for his other podcast, which would be Silhouette Zero, you might get a trend there, about the wacky hijinks of a rather diminutive crew of madness and Star Wars awesome. And we're all at thehydeanway.com, where you can find previous episodes, as well as our sister podcast, Tales from the Hydean Way. All of our podcasts are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing the show. We're also on Facebook as Heroes of the Hydean Way. You can drop us a holocom at heroes at thehydeanway.com. And if you want to help support the show, then head on over to patreon.com slash thehydeanway.